Does life have any purpose? What happens to you when you die? Is there really a God and if so, where did he come from? Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's really good to be with you. You have a wonderful church. Uh, this is just a great place. I thank God for you all and what you're doing here. A few years ago, uh, I watched an hour special on television that focused on 1950s television commercials. Uh, they were all in black and white, and it was a really, really interesting time to go back to that culture 60 year go years ago and to remember what it was like. One of the things that stands out in my mind about that uh, show was that during the hour they presented three or four television commercials that promoted the health benefits of cigarette smoking. <laughs> in fact, in one of the commercials, a doctor got up uh, in the commercial and said it's widely acknowledged in the medical profession that cigarette smoking is really good for you. Um, it will help you with your a digestion, it will help you deal with ulcers, it's relaxing, and we recommend that you smoke a cigarette in the evening after a good meal. Cigarette smoking is good for your health. Now, <laughs> as widely as that was believed, it still wasn't true, was it? And what this demonstrates is that there can be cultural myths that are believed by almost everybody, but that doesn't make them so. Now, there's a cultural myth today that's believed by people in the secular culture, but it's also believed, I hate to tell you, by many people in the church. But no matter how widely believed this myth is, it's still a myth. It's not true. And the idea goes something like this. The more scientific training you have, the more educated you become, uh, the more rational you are, the more you're likely to be an atheist. If you're emotional and needy, and you like to believe things on the basis of blind faith, you'll probably believe in God. So reason is in the, is in the uh, camp of the atheist, blind faith is in the camp of the believer, and never the twain shall meet. And so recently, a few years ago, Cornell University biologist uh, William Provine made the following statement, and here's what he said, quote, let me summarize my views on what modern evolution tells us loud and clear. There are no gods. There are no purposes. There is no goal-directed force of any kind. There is no life after death. When I die, I'm absolutely certain that's going to be the end of me. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics no ultimate meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. Now, it's a bit odd for man to say that there's no free will. If he, why would he tell you that if he isn't assuming you have the choice as to whether or not to believe him? That's a bit of an odd thing for a person to do. But nevertheless, we have a word from a well-known speaker who is espousing a myth that is repeated regularly and that many people accept today that if you become educated and find out what the real academic learned people know, if common people just knew what the learned people knew, they wouldn't be able to hold on to their belief in God. 
So this Christmas season, a group of atheists took out placards on buses in New York City that said, this Christmas season, celebrate reason, not blind faith. Join the atheist movement. And the assumption again is that belief in God is a matter of faith, atheism is a matter of reason. Now, no matter how many people believe this, this is nothing but a myth. It's not at all true. As a matter of fact, I think there's more reason to believe in God than there is to be an atheist without making faith an issue whatsoever. Just looking at cold, hard facts, I believe that there are more cold, hard facts to support the existence of God than there is to support the non-existence of God or atheism or even agnosticism. So what I'm going to do in the time that we have left is I want to present to you three reasons why I'm not an atheist and why I believe in God. That'll be three reasons why I believe God exists and that I believe atheism is false. Now, where would you start if you were going to build a case for God? Well, fortunately, uh, the Bible gives us a clue as to where to start. And if you turn to Romans chapter 1, I want to read three verses to you, and we will get an indication from the New Testament about where we might want to look if we were going to build a case for God that did not use the Bible. Beginning in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, because God made it evident to them. So apparently, human beings have something in them that first came to them from the outside. Now, what is this thing that came to them, and therefore they carry it within them? What is it? Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. We get a clue from the Bible itself that there will be facets of creation that provide evidence that God exists that does not depend upon prior acceptance of the Bible itself. If you were to ask me, why do I believe in God? I would not say because I've experienced Him. I would also not say because the, the Bible tells me God exists. If you ask me why I believe in God, I would say because the evidence for God is better than the evidence against God. My faith is based on evidence, and I get the, re the biblical basis for that from Romans 1 that says that belief in God does not come from Scripture, and it doesn't come from a changed life. Belief in God comes from creation, and it's not belief in God, it's actually knowledge there is a God. Now, this gives us hope, then, that we might be able to formulate arguments for God's existence that use premises that do not depend upon prior acceptance of the Bible. And what I want to do is I want to give you three reasons. There are many more, and I'll talk to you a little bit about where to go for more information on this uh, as we're finished uh, this morning. But I want to give you three reasons why I believe in God and why I'm not an atheist that are based on creation. Reason number one. 
We now know the universe began to exist, and something supernatural had to bring it into existence. We now know the universe began to exist. What do I mean by the universe? Space, time, and matter. We now know that the universe began to exist. So when you go to a pizza place and a guy, you meet somebody, you had a pitcher to a beer, and he says, hey, you know what, man, I think it's been here forever. <laughs> well, he's unfortunately wrong because we now know the universe began to exist and something supernatural outside space, time, and matter had to bring the universe into existence. Now, how do we know the universe began to exist? How do we know that? Let me give you two reasons. There are at least four reasons, but I'll give you two this morning. Number one, it is impossible for anything to cross infinity. Nothing can cross infinity. Um, infinity is a large number. It's infinitely bigger than any finite number. Uh, infinity plus a billion is infinity. Infinity minus a billion is infinity. And you can't cross infinity one at a time. Illustration. I go to heaven and God says, Moreland, I got good and bad news. The good news is you're here by the grace of my son Jesus. The bad news is some of those messages you gave in some of those churches, they were pretty bad. So, your assignment is, I want you to count the natural numbers forever. So, I start counting. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I get up to 50 quadrillion. Another guy dies, and he starts, he's given the same assignment, and he starts counting, and he's up to the number 75. And I look over at him smugly and think, boy, this poor sucker's way behind me until it dawns on me, he's not behind me because we both still have the same number of numbers left to count, namely an infinite number. I have made absolutely no progress whatsoever. No matter how far you go, you're still infinitely far away from finishing. Now, if you can't go from zero to positive infinity, you couldn't cross from minus infinity to zero. Trying to go from minus infinity to zero is like jumping out of a bottomless, infinitely tall pit. Not only are you never going to get out, you can't even get started. It's kind of a mess. Because you, you have to cross infinity. Now, suppose that we freeze the present moment I'm speaking to you right now, freeze this moment and call it moment zero. This is minus one, it's a year ago. This is minus 50 years ago. This is minus 50,000 years ago. This is minus 50 billion years ago. This is minus 50 trillion years ago. If the universe never had a beginning, how far back here does it go? Infinitely far. Is there an edge back here? No, because if there were an edge, what would that be? That would be the beginning. So that if the universe did not have a beginning, the universe goes to minus infinity. But now we got a problem. Because if the universe never had a beginning, in order to get to the moment I'm lecturing to you, the universe has to cross from minus infinity to zero to get to this present moment, and the present moment could have never showed up. Because in order to get to the present moment, the universe would have to cross through an infinite number of earlier moments to get here, and that is impossible. 
The only reason, the, the only way the present moment could have occurred in the history of the universe is if there is an edge back here, and that's the beginning of space, time, and matter. So the distance between the beginning and my lecturing is finite. The first way that we know the universe had a beginning then is if it had no beginning, the present could have never occurred in the history of the universe. Since the present is here right now, it could only have been preceded by a finite past, and there had to be a beginning. Now, the second reason for how we know the universe had a beginning was discovered in the 1800s, and it's called the second law of thermodynamics. It's a $1.98 word. It can be understood very simply as the idea that the universe is running out of useful energy. It's using up its useful energy. Think of a tank of gas that was filled with gasoline and then it was um, sealed off so that no more fuel could get in it. And suppose you knew that the car that contained that sealed off full tank of gas had been idling, running, ever since it had been full, and you came across the car and you found it was still running very, very slowly. What could you conclude about the car? You could conclude that it, it had to have been filled up and turned on, what, a day ago, two days ago? You could sure know that it hadn't been filled and turned on a year or 50 years ago, because what would have already happened? It would have already run out of gas, would it not? You can certainly tell the car hadn't been filled up infinitely long ago. Because if that had happened, it would have run out of fuel infinitely long ago. Now, the universe is like that car. In fact, Time Magazine a few years ago had a featured article claiming correctly, if Christ doesn't come back, and He is, but correctly from an, ath an atheist perspective, that a day is coming when the universe is going to run out of heat because all the nuclear reactions and the stars that generate heat are going to run out of fuel. The lights are going to get shut off. It's going to be completely dark. So the universe is going to be cold, dark, and motionless. And the reason it hasn't done that yet is because it is still using up its fuel or useful energy. Now, let me, let me ask you a question. If the universe is using up its useful energy so that it will eventually reach a time when there's no motion, there's no heat or light, and if it hasn't reached that time yet, what do we know follows from that? It hasn't been using up its fuel forever. Because if the universe had been here forever and it had been using up its fuel forever, what would have already happened? It would have already reached a point where it was dark, cold, and motionless. Since that hasn't happened yet, the past has to be finite. It was wound up somehow, and from that point on, the gas tank was sealed off, and it's been running out of fuel, and it hasn't used up the gas tank yet. The universe had a beginning. And in the 20th century, one of the greatest discoveries of cosmology, which is very, very friendly to Christianity, though some believers don't think so, but they're wrong about this, and that's the Big Bang Theory, which indicates that the universe began to exist. All space, time, and matter came into existence, just as you would predict if these other arguments are, are sound, that we would discover evidence of a beginning. So we have three reasons to believe the universe began to exist. 
It's impossible to cross infinity. The second law, and we haven't run out of our fuel yet, third evidence that the Big Bang occurred. And as Ted Koppel said on Nightline once, bangs have bangers. You can't get a universe popping into existence out of nothing without a cause. Nothing can pop into existence out of nothing without any cause whatsoever. Something supernatural that is outside the universe had to cause the universe to come into existence. And whatever that thing was, it had to be personal, spaceless, timeless, immaterial, and capable of bringing a universe into existence. And that is as close to God as you can get. Something supernatural had to exist to bring the space-time physical universe into existence. Atheists have no explanation for the origin of space-time and matter. The, the believer in God has a very rational explanation. That's the first reason I believe in God and I'm not an atheist. Reason number two, <coughs> excuse me, biological information. Biological information. Years ago, there was a movie called Contact with Jodie Foster. Maybe you saw that movie. Jodie Foster was a SETI researcher in that movie, S-E-T-I. That's the search for extraterrestrial intelligence or life in outer space. Uh, millions upon millions of dollars have been poured into this research program. Laboratories have been set up all across the world and scanners are scanning the four corners of the universe for evidence that there is life in outer space. Now, in the movie, Jodie Foster discovered evidence that there was indeed intelligent life in outer space when she had a signal that came in that was the first 20 prime numbers in a row. You remember a prime number is divisible by one and itself only. And she, developed, she discovered a signal that contained the first 20 prime numbers in a row, and she rightly concluded in the movie, and if we actually discovered this, we should rightly conclude that it came from an intelligent mind. Now, how did she know that? Well, the SETI scientists distinguish randomness, order, and information. Randomness is if I took alphabet soup, tossed it up in the air, and the wind blew it, and it scattered. That's random. If a SETI scientist scanning a region of outer space received random noise on his scanner, he would not conclude that there was intelligent life sending that random noise. If a SETI scientist scanning a region of outer space discovered a very simply ordered pulsating wave, like the letters M-E, 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 just a wave pulsating back and forth. The scientists would not conclude that there was intelligent life in outer space. But if a scientist discovered a message that was not random and was not ordered but contained information, like the first 20 prime numbers in a row, or like John Loves Mary, or like the Gettysburg Address, or the Gospel of John, that scientist would rightly conclude that there is intelligent life behind that message, and here's why. Those scientists correctly assume 
that information only comes from an intelligent mind. So that if they discover information, they'll conclude that it had to come from an intelligent mind. But now there's a rub for the atheist. And the rub is that the single most important discovery of biology of the 20th century is that living things are filled with libraries of information. At the university where I took my PhD, USC, there are four or five major libraries filled with volumes of information. There is more information in the DNA in one of your cells than there is in all the libraries at the University of Southern California. And don't look so pious, that's also true of the libraries at Arizona State. <laughs> so what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the ganders here. So. The point I'm making is living things are libraries of information. Can, they contain the genetic code, which can be translated. Now, here's my question. Shouldn't it, shouldn't it be the case that what's sauce for the SETI goose is sauce for the DNA gander? Isn't that fair? If in doing research in the SETI project, we're assuming if we discover information, we ought to postulate it came from an intelligent designer who, sent them, who created the information, why don't we make the same assumption when we've discovered that there's information in living things? We ought to conclude that the best explanation for the origin of that information is an intelligent mind or designer of vast power and intelligence. Reason number two. Reason number three. There is an absolute moral law that is best explained by an absolute moral lawgiver. There is an absolute moral law that is best explained by an absolute moral lawgiver. Now, what do I mean by an absolute moral law? I simply mean an objective moral law that's true whether anyone believes in it or not. It would be an objective moral law that's true whether you believe in it or not. So an objective absolute moral law would be like the laws of gravity or physics or mathematics. We discover the moral law, we don't invent it. We discover mathematical laws, two and two is four, we don't invent that. We discover that E equals MC squared, we don't invent that. Now, there is then an objectively existing moral law that is out there that we have discovered. Now, what if somebody says, well, I don't believe in an absolute moral law, I'm a relativist. What you do is you find out what they care deeply about, treat it as though it's merely relative, and see what they do. And they become an absolutist very quickly. <laughs> Illustration. This, this literally happened. Years ago, I, I was at a stop-and-go, and, go, and a, a fellow that was, I ran into in the store there and I started talking, and I don't know how the conversation turned to ethics, but we began to talk about morality or something. And he said, yeah, I'm, I, I'm a relativist. I don't believe that there's something true for everybody. Hey, what's, whatever's true for you, man, it's true for you. That's great. What's true for me is true for me. Live and let live is my motto. So he was espousing relative. Well, I found out the guy loves the environment. So I said to him, look, I said, I don't know what you're going to think of me, but I've got, I have four buddies, and once a month we kick 50 bucks each and form a kitty at $250. We buy a 100-gallon drum of sulfuric acid, and we drive out on Lake Paris and dump the acid in the lake. And we've taken bets ahead of times, 
as to how many fish we're going to kill. And whoever gets closest to the number of fish that belly to the surface wins the rest of the kitty minus the cost of the sulfuric acid. I said, it's an absolute blast. <laughs> well, I, I'm not kidding. The blood vessels on this guy's neck. And so I said, sir, I'm not an expert in body language, but it looks to me from observing you that what you think my friends and I are doing is wrong. And then I said, I conclude that you're really an absolutist. You're only a relativist in the areas of your life like sexual morality that's convenient to your lifestyle. And the truth of the matter is, everybody knows there are moral absolutes. Listen, you meet a relativist that says there aren't any absolutes, don't, if they say to you, prove there are, you don't shoulder the burden of proof. It's self-evident. I don't have to prove that torturing little babies for the fun of it is wrong any more than I've got to prove two and two is four. It's obvious. You make the relativist prove that relativism is true, don't you shoulder the burden of proof on that. Now, the important point then is this. We know where moral laws that, that legislate and impose duties on us come from, don't we? Sacramento. <laughs> well, but there's a lesson there. A, a, a law, driving the right side of the road, is a legislated obligation that is imposed upon us by legislators. If there is an absolute moral law, there would need to be an absolute legislator who commands and imposes duties on us objectively. Let, let me illustrate with one other point here. Some of you may remember the Nuremberg trials where the Nazi war criminals were tried after World War II. Some of the Nazis defended themselves by appealing to moral relativism. And the idea was, everything's relative, so what gives you the right in Western Europe and the United States to judge us Nazis as to what we did because everything's relative? One of the judges in the Nuremberg trials said, in response, you're forgetting one thing, there is a law above the law. Now, what did he mean? He meant there is an absolute moral law above human law, German law, American law, French law, and so on, on the basis of which we are able to judge whether these are right or wrong. Now, we know where these come from. They come from persons that can will obligations and impose duties. Let me say that again. They come from persons who can will obligations and impose duties. If there is an absolute moral law, it would come from someone with the power to will obligations and impose duties on us. So the best explanation for the existence of the absolute moral law would be that there is an absolute moral lawgiver that stands behind the moral law. Why am I not an atheist? Why do I believe in God? There are many, many reasons, but I've given you just a brief treatment of three this morning. The first is that the universe of space, time, and matter began to exist. Why? Because it's impossible to cross infinity, 
If the universe didn't have a beginning, to come to the present moment could have never happened because to do so would require crossing infinity. Since the present moment is here, it can only have been preceded by a finite past, which means there was a beginning. The second law says the universe is running out of useful energy, like a tank of gasoline that's sealed off after having been filled. If you came across the car and it was still running, you would know that it hadn't been there for very long. Similarly, the universe will someday reach a time when the heat and the lights and the motion are all going to stop. Since that hasn't happened yet, it could not have been using up its fuel forever. There had to be a beginning, and since the beginning, it's been burning up its useful fuel. And then the discovery of the Big Bang indicates the universe of space, time, and matter exploded into existence at a specific time in the past, a finite time. These imply, these three arguments imply that our universe has not been here forever, it began to exist. And something immaterial, spiritual, non-temporal, outside time and outside space, with the power to decree a universe, had to bring the universe into existence because you cannot get something popping into existence out of pure nothing without any cause whatsoever. That just can't happen. The second reason I believe in God is because of the discovery of information in DNA. It is a wise saying that information comes from an intelligent mind. That saying is the basis of the SETI research science project, and secular scientists agree with that principle. It is not a Christian principle. Were the SETI scientists not to accept that principle, they couldn't do their work. If information, however, is best explained by an intelligent mind, the discovery that living things contain information should be explained by appealing to an intelligent designer that was the source of the information for living things. Third, there is an objective absolute moral law that is, moral principles that are true and out there, whether anybody believes in them or not, torturing little babies for the fun of it is one principle in the absolute moral law. But moral laws that are legislated and imposed on us come from moral lawgivers. And the best explanation for the existence of the absolute moral law is that there is an absolute moral lawgiver. Now, two lessons. Uh, lessons for, for two groups. In the, in the 1950s, the myth was that cigarette smoking was good for you, and everybody believed it, but it wasn't true. Today, you watch television, you, 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 you watch uh, cable news, you read the newspaper, you have people interviewed on Dateline NBC, Bill O'Reilly uh, uh, interviews Richard Dawkins, on, on his news program. You go to a Borders bookstore and go uh, into the science section. You're going to pick up literature and hear a message that tells you that reason and evidence and cold hard facts are on the side of atheism. Believers are just warm-hearted, dear, kind of naive, ignorant, um, blind faith people. Who, who need a crutch. Now, 
we all need a crutch, and thank God for it. I need one as badly as you do, but Christianity is not ignorant, and it's not blind. The Christian religion has always been a religion that has valued evidence to undergird faith. And what I want to say, if you're here this morning and you do not believe in God, I want to ask you to reconsider your unbelief. There is evidence for, the, for God's existence that you have not considered, I'd be willing to bet. And I'd like to challenge you uh, to consider that evidence. Uh, one way to do that is there's a CD I brought that expands this lecture into four hours that gives more information, including why we should be Christians, which I've said nothing about this morning. If my arguments work this morning, then you get a generic creator God, but it could be Allah or the God of the Bible. I haven't been able to get to Christianity uh, today because of time. I don't know how many of those are left. Um, I have a website uh, with free downloads of lectures and articles I've written and, uh, and so on called jpmoreland.com. That may be of help to you. If you are a believer here, I want to challenge you as you're growing to come to, to know why you believe what, what you believe. Large churches like yours have, are threatened with being shallow. The, uh, the, the staff of this church is committed to that not happening here. And thus you have educational programs, small groups, you bring folks like me in to speak, uh, to, to give a, a, a more, an intellectual flair to the church calendar. That, that's very important. Don't you be a person that settles for an anti-intellectual spirit about your religion. Your religion is rationally defensible. Learn a little bit about that. You don't have to be a scholar like me. That's my calling. But you can learn a little bit more about why you believe what you believe. Because no matter how many people tell you that cigarette smoking is good for you, it's not true. And no matter how many people tell you atheism is smarter than belief in God, that's not true either. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You did not call us to step into the dark with blind faith in coming to You. We thank You that You've given evidence of Your existence to anyone who wants to know what it is. We pray that You would help us if we don't know You to find that evidence, and for those of us who know You to come to know why we believe what we believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you.